Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my newest patron, Fernando from Abyssal Brews. Fernando and Matthew were on my show last season, so go check that out if you haven't already. If you'd like to support the show, want a shout out on my next episode, or want an inside scoop on upcoming guests, consider joining. You can find the link in my episode notes, my link tree, or by heading to patreon.com slash hn, the number two, DM. One more quick announcement I'm really excited about. I have a few friends in the podcasting world, like Bombarded, who donate a percentage of their ad and patron money to good local causes, and I've decided to follow suit. Starting in 2022, 10% of the money I bring in each month from ads and supporters like you will be donated to Encircle, a nonprofit organization with the mission to bring the family and community together to enable LGBTQ youth to thrive. Encircle has built a couple of homes locally and is planning on building others in neighboring cities and states for LGBTQ youth to have a place to hang out and enjoy a safe space. They have daily programs, friendship circles, offer therapy on site, and even have a D&D club. It's on a hiatus because of COVID, but I'm really excited to join in on the fun once they're able to start playing again. Overall, I think it's an amazing cause and I'm really excited to help support. To learn more, visit their link in the episode notes or my link tree. And now to introduce this week's guest. Guy Sklanders is a seasoned TTRPG content creator who has recorded thousands of hours of YouTube content, written books, and created his own games and supplements for other games. Guy is an incredible improviser who comes up with characters at the drop of a hat and has dozens of accents at his disposal to make these characters come to life. I've been watching his videos for years and I'm really excited to have him on as a season 2 guest. Enjoy! in South Africa, which when I was growing up was under sanction from the rest of the world because of the apartheid government that was in power. So when it came to role playing, it was definitely something that was discovered because a friend of a friend of a friend kind of found a copy while they were outside of the country and then kind of brought it in. And that's exactly what happened with me. My best friend in the school, this was how long ago it was, they were a Dutch family and they had relatives in, in Holland and they discovered D&D and then said, hey, cousins, you guys should, should play with this. So I got invited to join them. And this was Dungeons and Dragons Advanced, uh, sort of AD&D as it was called. And we very quickly jumped into second edition as soon as we could get our hands on it and absolutely loved it. But it was also very interesting because that was my only exposure to role-playing until we kind of got fed up with our DM and said, right, that's it. We don't want to play with you anymore. And we said, okay, well, who's going to take over? And I went, well, I hate Thaco or Thaco, however you want to pronounce it. I hated that because maths was never a strong point. So I was like, I'll DM. That way I can just lie and say the monster gets hit or the monster misses or whatever. And I don't have to do all the math. So I'll take over. So that's kind of how I got into it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so as far as your first game, do you remember what your first game was that you ran? How it went? What, what kind of game you ran? It would have been something that did not last for very long. And it would have been something that was overly ambitious. I remember my first character, and I think this for me was very insightful as a DM because as a DM you're running lots of adventures and you're you know you're doing all of that kind of kind of stuff. But the players have only got one character, so that character has a lot of meaning to them. So my very first character, his name was Belenran. He was a, a, a specialist wizard in evocation, and he had the kit of militant mage so this is all second edition terminology kits were like advanced classes and evokers couldn't cast spells from certain schools of magic they could only cast sort of fire magic and that kind of stuff and i played him from level one to five uh, and this was with the dm that we decided we didn't want to play with anymore because 
what happened was the whole party, we had flushed some cobbles out of a sewer system under the town. And we decided that the cobbles layer that we had now emptied would make a great layer for ourselves. And so we started to dedicate our adventuring sessions to to finding rare wooden doors so we could have these cool doors for our sewer lair and to finding tables and matching chairs. I, I don't know what got into us, but we're players, right? We're going to follow whatever we follow. And the DM used to get frustrated because he'd try and give us adventures outside of the city. And we're like, yeah, but we're still saving up to get the banister for the stairs down into the sewer. We can't leave just yet. We've got a lead on someone who's got something. Anyway, so he then flushed the sewer with a, a big flood and locked it down and kind of got rid of all of our, our dreams and ambitions. And we're like, well, that was kind of why we were playing. We don't want to go back to the normal hack and slash stuff so uh, but it was a valuable lesson uh, two valuable lessons really is that the players are going to remember their characters but what happened to their characters so you got to make sure that that it is something that that is memorable and that that stuff does happen to the characters anyway i digress sorry dungeons and dragons letting people decorate their houses since 1974 yeah absolutely absolutely yeah the next question, and this is funny to me, um, when I created what was originally supposed to be a blog that turned into this podcast, I had watched your videos before and was well aware of your channel. I don't think I used it as inf influence into creating my name, how not to DM. But when I realized the irony, I knew I had to have you on just because I, I feel like we're we're two opposites here juxtaposed against each other in a cosmic battle for the soul of the GM. <laughs> um, but I, I want to know, Guy, what are some of the worst mistakes you have made in the times you've been running games? And then what are some of the lessons that you've learned on how to run games for people through these mistakes? I hope you got a long podcast because I have made a lot of mistakes. Uh, <laughs> you know, that that for me, making a mistake is never a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Stopping role-playing because you make a mistake is the bad thing. Mm. And I look at it and the biggest mistake that I remember making because I had players get so frustrated over it and I wasn't aware that I was even doing it was that I started to have all of my NPCs having private agendas, which they would try and manipulate the players into fulfilling uh, for themselves. And what happened was the players stopped trusting NPCs because they knew, yes, the NPC would help them, but there was always a hook. There was always something that was going to sort of bite them. And so they stopped engaging with my NPCs. And that very much frustrated me because I went, well, why aren't you engaged with my NPCs? They've got all these kind of cool plots and things attached to them and, and that sort of stuff. And they said, well, because they know they're going to get backstabbed or they're going to get used or abused. So that was the very first one that I kind of took from my early sessions. Mm. And the second one was my approach became very much an antagonistic approach to GMing. I became the bad guys. And I got to a point where I was so tired of the players defeating my bad guys all the time that I just wanted them to win occasionally. I wanted them to succeed. And I wanted the players to fail just to kind of knock them down a peg or two because they were constantly defeating me week after week after week. So then I suddenly started to have my villains have amazingly cunning ways of escaping out of the final battle or some weird and wonderful magical item that got them out of the situation. And again, my players got frustrated because they went, well, we there's no point in fighting them because you're just going to have them have this ability to get out of it. And I went, well, that's that's true too. And I had to realize, I had to learn that this is not the right position as a GM. It is not you versus the players. It is you and the players working together and the monsters are there. You are simply there to represent the monsters and to role play the monsters, but as an impartial entity. And so now I kind of cheer my players on when they roll well, when they come up with good ideas and things. And then the latest mistake, I guess, which I discovered last year, having released 600 videos on the subject, is that 
the idea that you as the GM have to come up with the plot and the adventure is completely wrong. And you should never be coming up with a plot or an adventure as a GM. You should be looking at the NPCs and at the world space that you are in and looking at the plans of the people that live there and seeing how those plans oppose the plans of the players or how the players' plans oppose their plans and kind of driving it from that. So instead of working out the conclusion to your adventure, you kind of work towards the conclusion. Anyway, I mean, that's that's why I have a whole channel. I can talk for hours and hours and hours on that subject. But yeah, I think those are the three major ones. NPCs have to sometimes just be nice people and just help. NPCs also are not there to win. NPCs are are there as part of the story. And then um, as a GM, you don't need to come up with all the adventures or the stories. You can run with it and see where it goes. Yes. So on the flip side, what are some of your favorite memories of role-playing in your games that have stuck with you since the time it happened? And it could be any game, you know, system agnostic, but what are some of the favorite memories that have happened, the pure magic of role-playing around the table? Wow. I'll give you two. One is a really good one and one is a really sad one. So I'll give you the sad one first. I had been running a quite a long campaign and one of the player characters revealed some very sensitive world-shattering information to an NPC couple. Now, the NPC couple had worked with the party for most of the campaign. They were on board an airship, and this particular couple were the engineers who ran the airship on behalf of the PCs. So they'd had a long-running relationship and that sort of thing. And when they were told this earth-shattering revelation, which put them working, the, 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 the couple working firmly on the side of evil although they didn't know they were working for evil. They had, by their actions, been propagating the evil. I decided that this couple couldn't live with themselves, and the player character found the bodies. And the player burst into tears and had to leave the table because it was so emotionally true, and they were so distraught that this couple are now no longer part of the story because of this big revelation. Everybody at the table was like, oh my goodness, what do we do? And a moment or two later, the person came back to the table and they're like, I'm so sad right now, but at the same time, I am beyond ecstatic. And we're like, hang on a moment. How can you be on the one hand in tears and on the other hand, so ecstatic? And they're like, I am so sad because I really love these people. But at the same time, this is one of the greatest twists in a, a story I've ever had because I didn't see it coming and I didn't expect the emotions and yet it happened. And it feels so right, but it's so wrong. And I went, aha, well, then that's my job done. I've, I've got you to invest in these NPCs. And I, I know it sounds like a hard experience to kind of rate as one of my top experiences, but to get a player to a point where they're so engrossed and they're so entrenched in my NPCs that that for me was a major highlight. Another one, which is a happier one, I had a different group of players who had taken an enemy NPC prisoner. And they didn't really know what to do with this prisoner because the prisoner was kind of a Hannibal Lecter type where they were truly evil. Well, at least they seemed evil on the surface, but they had a lot of good answers. So they kept them around, they kept them around, they kept them around. And Slowly, throughout the months of playing, the one PC started to fall in love with this NPC. And it got to a point where the PC decided to let this NPC go and said, right, I'm going to set you free. The rest of the party doesn't want to do it, but I can't see you being caged like this. And they opened the door and the NPC went, well, I'm not leaving. You're here, so I'm going to be here. Anyway, what happened was the relationship just continued to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And the rest of the party came in. And what I really liked was that the players, they knew that this was happening. The players, 
but their characters reacted with anger and there was debate and there was like, well, maybe now you're a traitor, so both of you should be imprisoned or what do we do? You know, and they really role played it through. I guess my favorite moments are these emotionally true connections to imaginary stories. Yeah. And you're going, well, that is the epitome of it. That that is making something that is completely unreal real. And that's, you know, that's just brilliant. This is why it's one of my favorite questions to follow up the mistakes, because I love hearing stuff like this. That second story is Stockholm Syndrome to its finest. Yeah, that's that's really impressive that you uh that you pulled that off. Yeah. It was an interesting <laughs> one. All right. You've been known to talk about and play dozens and dozens of different tabletop role-playing games. So what is your very favorite? And if you can't pick a favorite, you know, what's your top three or so games to play, to run? Wow. That's an interesting one. Yes. I, I love role-playing different systems. I would say my favorite system to run, and this is more out of memory than actually running it because I haven't run one in, in this system in a long, long time, would be Pathfinder First Edition, which is really D and D three point seven five. Because D and D three is my D and D three point five was my favorite iteration of of, of Dungeons and Dragons. Three point seven five or Pathfinder was just the cherry on the top. It was really, really great. So. And to this day, I still make people make willpower saving throws and reflex saving throws. And people are going, what? Oh, you mean a wisdom saving throw and a dexterity saving throw? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So so definitely Pathfinder, without a doubt, I just love that space. I love that system. And it's my top three, but this one is a bonus one because it sits in that first space, is D20 Modern. And D20 Modern is effectively Pathfinder taken back to Dungeons and Dragons and then turned into a modern day setting or a sci-fi setting, which is what they did with an expansion book. That was, to me, the perfect D20 system. Everything just worked. Everything everything made sense. The classes were interesting. The The way they dealt with stuff was, 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 was very dynamic. So definitely, without a doubt, it's still on my bookshelf. That's my favorite system. Second one has to be, and this is more a legacy thing than anything else, is the West End game Star Wars D6 system. Came out in the 80s, was re-released recently, actually, but you were just rolling six-sided die. That's it. And it got created. It was a simple system, I, th- I thought, at lower level. At higher level, you might be rolling 17 or 20 six-sided dice and you have to add them. So I gained a skill. I can almost spot count D6s. If you roll a whole bunch in front of me, I can very, very quickly go, oh, it's 75. And I might be out by three or, or, or two points up or down. But that was a skill I learned playing that game. I, I really enjoyed that version of Star Wars. I thought that was really, really cool. And then my third most favorite system, would it be wrong if I listed my own system? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's your baby. <laughs> that would be Bounty Hunter. And Bounty Hunter is a diceless role-playing system. And I only, I list it because it's diceless. So it's very different from all of the other systems. But when you play it, you can get through so much adventure, so much story, because it's super quick and it just flies. And so where you've got the number crunching stuff, and then you've got the dice rolling stuff, which have a whole bunch of benefits. The one thing that none of the dice rolling role-playing systems can do is move quickly. Whereas with Bounty Hunter, there's no dice. It's you succeed or you fail. So you are flying through adventures. And, and I really like the fact that you can sit back after four hours and you've done a whole adventure with multiple combats and all kinds of stuff. And you're going, whoa. Okay, this felt very cinematic. The characters are much more heroic because it's you succeed or you fail type of thing. So so those would be my systems. What is your least favorite game you have played before? I would have to say the worst system that I have ever played. I would have to say it's Dungeons and Dragons 4th edition. And I know a lot of people will say that. But I think it came out too soon i think if dungeons and dragons 4 had come out 
10 years later, I think it would have re received very differently. I also feel that if they had released it as a card-based RPG rather than a book-based RPG, it would have succeeded. I like the ideas that they were trying in there. I still, to this day, use their one idea, which I thought was brilliant, which is the minion system where you have monsters that have got one hit point and they're there for dramatic purposes. Yep, I use them as well. Yeah, but you kind of go, wait, so you have a whole role-playing system for one mechanic, you know, and you go, yes, yes, I, yes, yes, I do. But I would say fourth edition just because it, it really felt like they were just trying to create an MMO which I think they were doing. I think they were trying to to do that. And we've seen we've seen Wizards of the Coast even this year trying to tap into existing properties that they think are going to enhance sales. A lot That's of their business. settings, yeah. A lot of them have been Magic the Gathering settings and vice versa. Correct. Who have been the greatest influences on your style of running games? These could be very personal or they could be very famous or a mix of both. I think the biggest influence on how I run my games has got to be, without any reservation, He-Man and the Masters of Universe. I grew up as a GM before the internet, so I don't think I had ever watched anybody else roleplay before. And even when I was finally able to attend conventions, there was only one convention a year in South Africa. So you got three days and you were playing, really. You weren't really watching other people play. So He-Man and the Master Universe, this is the 1983-84 animation by Filmation, not the latest Revelations version, was hugely influential because you had a recurring villain. Yeah. But you also had the idea that there are these little adventures that kind of unfold, but they always unfolded in exactly the same way. And that structure really helped me. It was like, you got introduced to the, the thing, you got introduced to how the bad guy is going to use the thing or try and get the thing, and then the heroes go through a process and, 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 and they defeat them. But also, it was this notion that your villains, and this, is, I think, is more of an 80s childhood than anything else, your villains were evil and they did evil things because they wanted power and there was no complexity to them. There was no backstory of anything. Skeletor did not have the backstory of being Prince Keldor and being denied the throne. And you know, there was none of that kind of stuff. It was no, he's evil because he's evil and he does evil stuff. I mean, Ghostbusters of the same period, their bad guy was just called primeval. They didn't even bother. They're like, well, he's just evil. So we're just going to call him primeval. Okay, cool. He's primeval, right? So definitely, I think 80s cartoons, big influence, episodic ideas of running these adventures and then having larger than life villains, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I grew up watching He-Man reruns on Cartoon Network in the US. So yeah, I, I'm very familiar with with those and, and also have a special place in my heart for He-Man and we still make jokes about it. One of my players in my current game is talking about wanting a, a battle mount that's a tiger, you know, because he wants to ride into battle. Right. And yeah, so. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Leading up to your introduction to tabletop role-playing games, what do you feel about your life experiences that kind of led you to gravitate towards that as a way to entertain yourself and then ultimately as a way to, you know, have a livelihood? When I was growing up, my grandmother was very influential in my life for a whole bunch of reasons, but I will never forget. It's one of my personal oldest memories. I was about five years old and I was staying with my grandparents at the time and they lived in a beautiful house surrounded by a forest of blue gum trees. Now, blue gum trees actually come from Australia, but if you've ever been in a forest of blue gums, the floor, the forest floor is covered in leaves with a few little growth bushes here and there, but it's not a very dense undergrowth. And the trees themselves, their bark is very dusty. So it, it, it's quite a, an atmospherically filled, but fairly open forest. And one afternoon I was playing and my grandmother came to me and she said, do you want to see the fairies? And I went, yeah, of course I want to see, you know, fairies. Where are these fairies type of thing? 
she took me on a little walk into the forest and it was late. I think it must have been an autumn or a fall afternoon. And there was this golden light streaming in through this very dusty forest. There were lots of these shafts of light. It was really, really like going into a Disney you know, fantasy film. And we had to be very quiet. We had to stop. And she kind of pointed. And there was this, this small bush which had these little lights, glowing lights, floating around it and kind of zipping around and darting around and, and, and that sort of thing in this golden sunlight. We had to be very quiet because if the fairies heard us, of course, they would run away. And we just watched them for about five or so minutes. And then my grandmother said, all right, that's enough. We mustn't intrude too much. We must go back. So then we left them. Of course, later on, I learned, oh, that was gnats. It was literally bugs floating around a bush, but it was the sunlight that made it look magical. But it was that that transportation away from everything into this magical world that kind of set me on the path. And before I could write, before I'd learned how to read and write, I would sit down, I would draw an image, usually of Skeletor trying to defeat he-man or, or something along those lines because i always rooted for the bad guys um <laughs> i would just then make scratches on the page and show my mother and say did i write anything and she would very kindly kind of look at this hen scratch because that's really all it was and she'd go well you tell me what the story is rather than me reading the story and i think that also encouraged me a to tell stories but b to then to tell stories rather than to kind of write them and that kind of stuff. And one thing led to another until eventually I graduated and, and went into film studies where script writing, it was something that I really enjoyed doing. Script writing gave me a whole lot of tools to run my games better. And as my games got better, so that whole side of things started to, to, to develop and stuff. And then I had the worst year of my life, which got me to a point where I was so low that I went, you know what? I'm just going to follow what I am absolutely passionate about, which is role-playing. And I did that. I took a big risk and ended up having a career made out of it, you know? So, but it was that journey, that sort of the realness of fantasy that has really kind of kept me going, I guess. That, that's a, an amazing story, by the way. And I feel like uh, I kind of, my mother also kind of kickstarted me into telling stories by forcing me to write short stories during the summer between school. And so, yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that uh, as a way to kind of get you into creating stories and, and that creative mindset. This episode of How Not to DM is brought to you by Gemmed Firefly. Need a fresh new look for the new year? Head on over to gemmedfirefly.com for the newest tees, mugs, and home goods styled with D&D gamer humor and aesthetics. As always, Gemmed Firefly makes every shirt to order, bringing you all of the softest and most comfortable shirts that thousands have come to love. And now, listeners of the show get a discount when you use the code DRAGON at checkout. Find your new favorite shirt at gemmedfirefly.com. Next, check out the latest from Minstrel's Tale. Hail fellow adventurers, and greetings from the frozen lands of Icewind Dale. Join the DM and players of Minstrel's Tale as they grapple with not only the frigid wastes of this inhospitable land, but the chilly hearts of the people who inhabit it. Tune in every Saturday at 6pm Pacific Time at twitch.tv slash minstrel's tale. And an awesome publication from Apple White Games. Explore a city of criminals, find the lost scholar, and discover the forgotten world hidden at the center of Aragarth. Journey to the Center of Aragarth is a D&D 5e campaign for high-level parties looking to test their abilities live on Kickstarter February until the 28th. So, level up your characters, and don't miss your chance to join the adventure. And finally, a Kickstarter from Icarus Games. Make learning 5th edition easier than ever with the class cheat sheets from Icarus Games now on Kickstarter. Keep track of all of your class abilities with simple language, easy to reference icons, and page references for the full rules. And never forget your options in combat thanks to a handy quick reference guide for actions in combat. Kickstarter is live until March 2nd. Sign up at icarus-games.co.uk slash kickstarter. As always, links to all of this great content from all of these creators is available in my episode notes. And now, let's return to the show, starting up with a brand new minigame for Season 2.
And now it's time for Holy Fire. Quickfire Chaos. This week, Guy and I are going to use some random D100 tables to create an NPC fetch quest and then roleplay the situation to show off Guy's improv skills. Let's get rolling. So, the first thing you're going to roll is what type of voice you're going to have. And this isn't accents, this is just like the type of voice, right? And I'll let you do whatever accent you want to do. 56. Okay, 56 is... Speaks slowly, but not a drawl, just condescending. I understand, young man. I think you're quite, quite right. Very well. Okay. Uh, next is what job your NPC has. <laughs> I, okay, I'm going to use some different D10s. I'm pulling on the GM prerogative here to change the dice and the roll. Please do. Uh, I'm not going to have the same number. 32. Okay, 32 is you are a condescending cartographer. All right. <laughs> you do understand that I actually have a character named Jonathan Swift who is a condescending cartographer. All right, yes. <laughs> Personality trait. 88. 88. have to scroll a bit. 88 is rebellious. Uh, resisting yeah. some established authority. You're you're a real rock star of the map world. Yeah, <laughs> punk rock. I like that. Okay, and lastly is the fetch quest, which we are coming to you for. Uh, wow, one hundred. Wow, I got a one with my last guess. That's funny. Uh, okay, oh. the heart of a nymph. Right. Uh, I am Sir Grievous, and we've been told that you have an errand to run. Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I do. But I think I should preface this by, by just pointing out that um, I'm not entirely sure that you're, you're, you're actually um, you're, you're qualified, as a matter of fact. Oh? Well, this does require a certain amount of... Y yes? ...intelligence and understanding... Um, and capacity, really, uh, to, to, to grasp the fundamentals of the enormity and the peculiarity of this 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 undertaking. Well, I assure you, I've I've studied in the finest schools in the land. My father made sure that I had the best education, so I think I can perform the task quite admirably, if you'll give me a chance. Well, the best schools, you say? Indeed. Well, I suppose... If your father's got enough money for you to have decent breeding. All right, then. The challenge is the Royal Cartographic Society currently believes that the world that we are on is round. What? Now, we all know this is nonsense. Yes, exactly. We know that the world is definitely flat as a piece of paper. Why? Because we've seen it on a piece of paper. Yes, yes. Makes sense, doesn't it? So, I need to draw the final map, the greatest, most amazing map that has ever been created before and will never be created again. But... The map to end all maps. Well, exactly. Oh, well, maybe you're not such a dullard after all. I'm impressed. You get the point, then. Excellent. In order for me to create this map of all maps the map to end all maps, I will need to use a specific ink. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, this ink can only be found within a certain chamber of a nymph's heart. Do you have a lead? Well, the local druid, or gardener, as I like to call him, he uh, has some ideas that there is a wood elf that is in a forest not far from here. A rather interesting forest, actually, as it wasn't completely mapped out until about 50 years ago. But that's only because of a clerical oversight. Uh, I, I digress, nonetheless. There's a wood elf by the name of Chaos. Is it Chaos? Katos? Kalios? Something along those lines. Nonetheless, this wood elf claims to have been bewitched by a uh, nymph. In which case, 
They will probably know where the nymph is. Hmm. You, you up for a little, um, murder? <laughs> well, if it's for the map to end all maps for the RCS, the Royal Cartographer Society, it shall be done. Oh, absolutely. Once I prove the RCS wrong, there'll be no stopping me. Oh, this is in direct defiance of the RCS. It's time someone made a stand. All of this spherical nonsense. It can do no good. Hmm. I shall go. All right. <laughs> that was awesome. Oh, uh, well done. Well done. <laughs> now let's pivot to your channel and to your content creation and to your game design and that kind of stuff. How did you get started creating TTRPG content? And what came first? Was it videos or publishing guides and supplements or game design? It was definitely videos that came first. And mm -hmm. it came about because I had been at a convention where we were, we were playing competitive role-playing. We were being scored based on your GMing skill or your player skill. And I'd won that competition a couple of times. And I was signing up for, for that particular year. And a young GM was there and, and they said, oh, are you signing up to participate? I said, yes, I am. And he said, okay, well, then there's no point in me signing up because I can't possibly win. <laughs> and I went, well, that's not the point. The point is we're here to role play and then we get some score on the side and maybe a free, you know, a, a game book or, or, or whatever the prize was. So I immediately withdrew from the competition. I said, no, you, you must role play because we, we role play for fun, not for, for, for anything else. But then I kind of got to thinking, well, what, what was the differentiator? Why was it that I was getting scored very highly and, and, and no one else was? And that led me to, to then say, okay, well, let me look at it. And, and really, it just came down to, I think anyway, all the training that I'd had in film and script writing, I was able to kind of put that into practice in role playing. So I started to do the videos. And, and that's what the first sort of few videos were on was sort of narrative structure and, and, and that sort of thing. And then when people started responding to that, I went, okay, well, we can start to really unpack this. And yeah, that, that happened a lot. Uh, we only were doing videos. It was kind of part-time. It was just hobby stuff as we had uh, time to do it until eventually I was, I was in Tokyo and I was in a very bad space. And I went, you know what? I want to do this full-time. And the very first thing I need to do is I need to write something. I need to prove to myself that these videos haven't just been for nothing. I, that there's, there is a book in here somewhere. And that's when I wrote the first book, The Complete Guide to Epic Campaigns. And it did really well. You know, this was, we didn't kickstart it because Kickstarter was still kind of a new thing. It was certainly had never been done before in, in South Africa, it wasn't even legal in South Africa. The, you know, there was no way to tax it. But because I was in Japan, all of a sudden we could. And anyway, so the book did really, really well. And that kind of really encouraged us to to spread our wings and, and to, to to try new things and, and stuff. So yeah, now we, we're on our fourth book and going strong. What have been some of the most fun opportunities that have come from deciding to start creating content? You know, have it, has it been convention attendance or panels or you know what what is the kind of the, the most fun that you have with this hobby? Going to conventions is yes a major boon uh, or it was until twenty twenty right. Um, it was a major joy to do that, but the biggest reward I get is from setting up groups. So it might be a Discord group or a WhatsApp group or some kind of social media group, and it's thrashing ideas out with people. So all of my books, I have always included a, a bunch of alpha readers who come in, they read the book, or they, they look at the ideas, and then they play around with them. And it has been amazing to meet people that you go, well, what do you do during the day? Oh, during the day, I'm a, a, an astrophysicist or, you know, I'm a heart surgeon or this or that. But at night, I do stuff. And nautical campaigns, the Completed Guide to Nautical Campaigns, which I wrote when I was in the States for a while, I had a bunch of playtesters who would come around every weekend and they'd be like, okay, what are the rules today? How have we changed? What do we tweak? And it's that kind of collaboration which again is really just role playing, but now we're role playing with a, a different kind of outcome. That is is just phenomenal. That and then getting you know reviews from people saying, "I read your book, and it has helped make my game more enjoyable." And you go, "Well, then that's it." 
you know the most rewarding yeah in your videos you often create random npcs and scenarios and it seems like it's on the fly number one is that scripted or not and then number two you know what's your secret of improving your accents your personas and really embodying the characters that you play uh never scripted never scripted and and if you watch my videos i suspected yeah you'll see that they're not scripted my next few videos that are coming out there's a new word of the day it's called learning if you learn something that is because it's not scripted <laughs> and my my brain wanted to say learn but my word came out learn and learn is a new form of learning learning is when you are just absorbing information learning is when you are drawing nourishment and you are you are absorbing the information so it becomes part of you. You are learning it rather than learning it, right? <laughs> so no, I, I never script anything. And the way I generate an NPC in my head is very quickly I try and see the person. I try and see the NPC. I get a visual image in my head, and that automatically puts me in the posture that they're sitting in. It prescribes to me a potential voice that they might use. And the moment I've got that image, I then attach a goal to them. I give them a goal. And if they've got that goal, then it's gold. And then I can talk as that NPC for days because everything is going to hinge around that goal. If you can give me just two more pieces of information, their occupation and their attitude, that's it. It's actually a system I talk about called OGAS, which is occupation, goal, attitude, and stake. How much are they willing to invest in those other three three elements? And then you can go. So so like this arrogant cartographer who's yeah. rebellious. I had unwittingly given you all of your points. Yeah, that's funny. You gave me all that stuff. But this is also what I've been realizing is that we all know these things how to tell stories, how to create good characters. We all know these things because we're exposed to them through television and Netflix and YouTube and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes it's just about articulating the bigger concept to be able to then learn it, to lock it in and go, oh yeah, I am doing it subconsciously. Now I know the actual thing. Now I can do it even more. And so that really unlocks things and, and, then, and then off you can go. Your second part or the second part of your question, the accents and things, there are one or two techniques that you can do to, to improve your accent. I always look at the shape of a person's mouth for their accent. I will never forget Emma Thompson, the actress. She once she had to do an American accent, and she said all she did was pretend that she was chewing gum. And, you know, she said, it's just a very chewy kind of, you know, you're just chewing gum all the time. I think that's that's a very specific type of American accent. But yeah, you look at the shape of people's mouths, that helps you. And even if you just change the shape of your mouth, you're not doing an accent, but suddenly your voice changes. So if you just don't move your teeth, you automatically start sounding slightly different. If you lock your teeth together or... You know, if, if you stick your bottom jaw out from, from and, and, and then suddenly you have a different sound. But the accents, it's just watching as many films that have got different languages in them with the risk that you realize that when you are then doing a German accent, you're not doing an actual German accent. You're doing an American actor doing a German accent, German accent. Right. But that's okay because you're not actually, I don't think anyway, ever trying to go, well, this elf is a German. No, you're saying this elf, this elf happens to sound like this because this is how they speak and that is it and so be it. You know, and you're going, aha, so I can differentiate these different things. So. What is one of your tabletop role-playing game hot takes and alternatively what is a topic of a video or other content that you have made that makes people heated mm. uh, how to play female characters okay yeah that got me banned from the role-playing association of new zealand that topic i was officially banned when that video came out but then the LGBTQ community of New Zealand officially welcomed me and said that I was welcome to play at their role-playing table any day. Yeah. So that's pretty galvanizing to have a little island on the other side of the planet kind of ban you and welcome you at the same time. It's like, okay, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, 
and and it is a hot topic in terms of its role playing. So the whole idea of role playing as a different gender, if you want to do it properly, you have to ask questions. You have to ask the question, what makes men and women and everything in between, what makes us all different? And then how do I show that? And then you fall into the trap of everyone saying, well, we're not different. And you're going, but physically we are. And so that that may have impact on how, you know, so it's a really, really contentious issue. And I think that when you look at the galvanization, you go, yes, people are really aware of this topic, but it does boil down to what makes you comfortable and what makes everybody else at your table comfortable. Mm-hmm. And really, that that's also another topic that often causes issues as well, is acceptance at your table. Accept people for who they are. Don't judge them, that kind of stuff. Some people are going, no, no, no. I only want to play with people at my table that I have judged, and I have judged them to be okay to play at my table. That's absolutely fine, as long as everyone knows that that's the situation and there's not you know any kind of malicious intent or, or subversion going. Anyway, I mean... And I, I look at that and I go, all of this stuff is, it's it's wonderful stuff to discuss. It's wonderful stuff to understand how it impacts our hobby. But again, it shows you that our hobby is so complex that we're we're dealing with the imaginary, but at the same time, people take it very personally because they are the ones that are in this fantasy space. It's, yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it is very complex. You're right. All right, to wrap things up here, you know, if you could kind of distill all of your guidance, all of your wisdom into a few words to people who are running games, what would your advice be to them? It is a collaborative storytelling game that utilizes mechanics and when the one outbalances the other it's an imbalanced game but the key component is that everybody at the table the gm the dm the director the storyteller whatever you want to call yourself and the people responsible for pcs everybody at the table is a player the gm is not there to provide entertainment or escapism for the players the gm and the players are there together to create an experience and the moment that you start to see the gm as someone who is responsible for creating fun for creating a diversion or for anything along those lines you've turned your gm from being a friend or from being a fellow player into a form of entertainment unless it's their job and you're paying them, in which case, then yes, that is exactly what they should be doing. But if they're your buddies, you're all sitting around the table, you're all responsible for this this thing uh, equally. No one is more responsible than the other. Hmm. I love that. So to wrap things up, what projects are you working on right now, Guy? And what do you want to plug here? Well, at the moment, we are in the final stretch of our Kickstarter, which was for the new book, The Practical Guide to Becoming a Great GM. And The Practical Guide, it's a massive book. It's like 300 pages of everything you could want to know from world building to adventure design to NPC management and Everything that I've been speaking about on the channel for decades is now in this single book. Currently, it is, like I said, still in development, but you can still join the Kickstarter as a late pledge or the backer kit to add the product uh, if you if you want to do that. And for more information on that, you can head on over to our website, which is www.greatgamemaster.com. I think it's a very exciting project because it's the book, the practical guide, but We are also rewriting our bestseller book, The Complete Guide to Creating Epic Campaigns, and that gets added on to this first one. It's an add-on you can add in the basket. And that book, people read that book and they go, this has changed my approach to designing campaigns for the better. 
that's almost invariably always for the better and is is useful stuff. It's not just highbrow kind of stuff. It's packed full of, okay, do this exercise, internalize, learn the process, take it on board, and now take the next step, take the next step. So it's, it's really as, as practical as possible. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Guy, for joining me today. Like I said, I've been watching your videos for years and have loved all of the, the stuff I've watched. I have not watched all of them, admittedly, because there are so many and you've been so prolific in your creation. So, but I'm sure you know you've influenced hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in, in their running games. So thank you so much for being willing to join me and to chat a little bit about your background and give your best advice to us. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, actor and writer Todd Stashwick. And then Aaron Stanford really took to the game, and I've played with him like three times now. He's a fantasy nerd, so he really like leaned in hard to the game, loves it, and he's so fun. And one of my favorite moments, because he, he has a sort of wonderful kind of, he's got a leadership quality to him, and, he's, and, and he wants to kind of pull opinions. And there was one moment where they come into town and all the town folks were turned to stone. And then he goes, all right, we have a Medusa situation here. And he's just like, he just like called it into order. For more stories about Todd's favorite actors to play D&D with and much more, make sure to subscribe to the show and tune in next week. Remember to check out my Patreon if you haven't already for even more sneak peeks like this. Spotify has just added the rating feature for podcasts, so make sure to give How Not to DM five stars. Same goes for Apple Podcast users. Reviews help me find new ears. Another great way for me to find new ears is by you sharing this show with your fellow great GM fans or anyone else in your life who loves tabletop gaming like you do. My new intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat. And the Quickfire Chaos mood music is by Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more information about their great work. And finally, as always, until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.